Assalamu alaikum everyone my name is Abdul Rahman and today the topic of the podcast is reinterpretation of fiqh and the roles and rights of citizen in modern nation states that's a very complex and important topic that should be discussed in modern times how fiqh and sharia should be used in modern times when sharia or islamic ruling <clears throat> meet, meets the fiqh of reality so for that we have today dr shadi Dr. Shadi is uh, currently serving as a scholar in residence at Islamic Center in New Jersey. He graduated from uh, George Washington University and did his PhD from University of London. So he is also the founder of Safina Society, where he has launched different courses <clears throat> to serve uh, for the cause of traditional uh, Islamic education in the West. Thank you, Dr. Shadi, for joining us today. You're welcome. My and- pleasure. and rest we have uh, Furkan Sadat he is financial analyst at Charter Communication we have Rahatullah he is engineering manager at uh, Glass and Wire Communication and we have Soman Ilahi he is a current student of theology at Harvard Divinity School thank you everyone for joining me today Absolutely. so dr shadi first question is would you just briefly explain to our listeners cuz i i want to make it very simple in the start cuz like the layman listening to this should understand what's the difference between sharia and fiqh bismillah arrahman arrahim alhamdulillah wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala the simple answer to that is i would say that a sharia is more broad than the word fiqh sharia is the path that allah taala has uh, established for us for in on all matters okay anything good uh you know that uh, the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as he said if there's anything that is good i've shown it to you anything that is bad for you i've shown it to you all of that we can call that this is the shara of allah taala the path it can include beliefs it could include you know spirituality it could all that we would call that uh ashriya mm-hmm. in general Now when we talk specifically about the Islamic sciences people tend to refer to the sharia as the outward sciences that can be physically viewed and rationally understood and they dis- distinguish between sharia and tariqa and haqiqa so so that's another way of looking at the word sharia another distinction that you have the outward matters outward and rational mm-hmm. you would All right so that would be like doctrines and laws and then spirituality is haqiqa which is that which is inward so that's another view but ultimately regardless how you view those it is that which is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now fiqh is that which is the understanding of the human beings of the texts that Allah ta'ala has brought us and the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam we call fiqh. Now what's the relationship between the two? A very important distinction and relationship because when it seems that we're downgrading fiqh to be man's understanding of sharia, well, we all know that human beings make mistakes, okay? Which means there could be mistakes in fiqh. Mm-hmm. But it's very important to notice that the sharia itself has sort of announced and Allah has in surah an-nisa and the prophet sallallahu and other ahadith that the path of the mu'minin whenever scholars come to a uh, majority agreement upon a matter 
then that matter will not be a misguidance. Okay, it will not be a misguidance. So that is for so when when you say something will not be a misguidance, okay, then what can it be? It could be guidance or mm-hmm. an error that doesn't have significance, right? A, a non-harmful error. And that ayah in Surah An-Nisa is very important. This is a most important glue. This verse is the glue between when we say fiqh and sharia, and we sort of, it seems that we're downgrading fiqh by saying it's the human understanding, but that human understanding is also guided and protected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the sake of his servants. Because if all the scholars got something wrong, then the message wasn't clear, right? Mm-hmm. Then, then, then we have, then there's no hujja. Hujja means mm-hmm. like a proof against us. Mm-hmm. If everyone got it wrong, why would I get it wrong too? Who's, who's mm-hmm. innocent and who's guilty at that point? So mm-hmm. there would be no hujja. There would be no way to know the truth. And it would actually be an accusation against the Quran and the, and the Prophet if the matter was not clear enough that there can't be a consensus understanding. So let me unpack that ayah because I just said it in Arabic. It says, whoever goes against, goes against the Prophet, breaks away is really for the Prophet. After guidance has been shown to him, and he follows other than the path of the believers, we abandon him as he has abandoned us. right? Or we abandon him to what he has chosen. And we punished him in the fire. And what an evil end. So a couple important points here is that who are the believers that have a path? The path of the believers. Sabil al-Mu'mineen. Which believers establish religious paths? It's the scholars. Mm -hmm. So the Kalam scholars established a doctrinal path, a path of doctrine. The Hadith scholars established a religious path, how to understand Hadith. The four Madhabs established paths of how to understand the law. The imams of the, the spiritual paths, they've established understandings of uh, the spiritual path. So, al-mu'mineen here are establishing a path is only the scholars who do so. Common Muslim doesn't establish a religious path for anybody else, right? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that abandoning that jama'ah, the word jama'ah in this sense means the long arching history of Islamic scholars that where there's a consensus on matters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who abandons that can be punished in the hellfire. So therefore, following that consensus has a degree of obligation upon us. So that's sharia and that's fiqh and that's the glue that binds the two. Mm-hmm. So here comes a question like how necessary it is to preserve the traditional and historical value of Islamic rulings and sharia and when it collapses or when it meets the fake of reality, when it meets the new circumstances of modern times. So, like, how necessary is it to uh, take the traditional and historical views mm-hmm. and consider the modern solutions for the, for the problems, for the, for the circumstances in the modern times? Okay, so let me add, you know, to Abdurman's question. Um, As you said, there is a consensus, right? Uh, Which which 
which we have been following for the past 1400 years. Yeah. So let's say uh, we have a consensus and that consensus or ijma doesn't apply to our times or to that specific place or era. Okay, so, so yeah. Go ahead. So this is a very important question. And let me tell you where there is a type of flaw or, you know, a blind spot when you're driving in there and you look from your left mirror to, to, to go left, okay? Uh, I don't know, Pakistan may have the driver's seat on the right side. I don't know. But there's going to be a blind spot. And you look and you make the you, – you shift lanes, but then you get hit, right? Mm-hmm. You get hit because there's a blind spot. So in every thought process, there sometimes are blind spots. Now, the blind spot is the separation between historical fiqh and present-day situations. It, it's almost as if the scholars have left us these books, right? Mm-hmm. And here we are today. And it's as if the scholars have not produced a constant flow of new scholars mm-hmm. within the four madhabs who are applying... The, who are the, the bridge between us right now and the past. And that's why it's very important to emphasize the living chain, the, 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 the widespread living chain of transmission. And remember, mm-hmm. one opinion, two opinions, one living person doesn't make a difference to us. We only going to practice that which has a very small degree of percent error. And that's why the concept of the large numbers is very important. And that's why we only have the four madhabs left. Mm-hmm. Let's say somebody came out of a cave tomorrow, right? And he said, by the way, we've been living in a cave and we have preserved Imam al-Awza'i's madhab from one person all the way to another, to another, to another, back to Imam al-Awza'i himself. We would say, thank you very much. That's wonderful. But no one's following that because you're one person. You're mm-hmm. speculative. You could make a mistake. But the four madhabs have existed and they have transmitted in every decade, in every century, people, not people, dozens, hundreds, thousands of scholars who are connecting that chain. So we're not left alone to look at the world and to look at historical fiqh. We have scholars living amongst us. It's just people have to search them out, Mm -hmm. right? And there are many, and the Prophet promised that they would be apparent, public, you can find them. Okay, until the day of judgment. So the answer to that is that within the madhabs, there are methods and there is an achievement within scholarship, a type of level of scholarship that we would call al-mujtahid fin nawazil, which means the mujtahid in current affairs, contemporary issues. Now, what does that mean? And how does that, that word mujtahid is someone who can derive rulings. So what does it mean when we say mujtahid within of nawazil, of current affairs? How does that differ from a regular mujtahid? Does that mean he's a mujtahid like Imadik Shafi and Ahmad? No, he's not. Mujtahid, the original mujtahid, Imam, he can derive rulings himself from the Quran and the Hadith. Himself. Mm-hmm. But the mujtahid that we have today within the four schools, and I'm sure all the four schools have this, yeah. they might use different terms for it, means that this person can use the rulings of the madhab of the school of thought as a primary source and make analogy against that for modern issues. So that's what fatwa, that's what a mufti is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that person is very important. 
Okay, it's extremely important. So that is a type of scholar. He's mastered his madhab so much, so well, that he can use the opinions within the school of thought as a primary source and make analogies for today against those opinions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's nowhere near to be like a mujtahid, like mm-hmm. Abu Hanifa, Shafi, and Ahmed, but he has what it takes to give us something that we can live with today. Mm-hmm. Dr. Chadi here, you know, uh, I, if I recall my memory, Dr. Uh, sorry, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa's famous saying about fiqh is, uh, as overwhelming majority in subcontinent people follow, you know, Hanfi school of thought. And the, his famous saying is, the fiqh is not rigid. Its application changes with time and space. And that's where, especially in the subcontinent, you know, where most of our contexts actually come from, where we lack a lot. And I'll just give an example, you know, uh, when especially Pakistani state, you know, were about to be uh, becoming a nation state, a famous scholar, Muhammad Iqbal, uh, yeah. Alama Muhammad, we call it, he said, you know, we are going to become a nation state, hence we, and there'll be a, around 90% of our people will be uh, Muslims. So we need to drive those fiki rulings according to our times. And that never, unfortunately, happened in Pakistan. And we suffer from from them. And one of the consequences of that is blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, uh, which we keep on, you know, making mistakes time and time again. I think that that's what you were uh, pointing towards, right? It's very important, a couple of things. Number one, to uh, emphasize what you said, which is our fiqh is consistent but flexible. Yep. The core, the core is consistent because if some, if things ch- change every uh, decade and every century, then it's not consistent. But if things don't change, then it's not applicable. We can't apply it. Right? So what does the Sharia bring? It brings firm foundations and principles and cons- and flexible application. Yeah. So that's the one thing which is basically, I think that's what you said earlier. The first thing you said, and that um, is something that the scholars have said. We have firm and consistent core principles, okay, mm-hmm. which sometimes in logic you go first principles. But then you have flexibility in the application. Now, that's in the legal matter that you can study. But there's another element of things, and that is what we call al-hikmah, right, wisdom. Wisdom is not necessarily something you can always put pen to paper with. There's assessments, there's judgment calls. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Quran refers to the Prophet's Sunnah as an example of hikmah. Sayyidina Ibrahim made dua, Oh Allah, send my Arabia, send them a messenger, yatlu alayhim ayatik, that he will recite your verses to them. And he teaches them the book, which means that a superficial recitation of the Qur'an will not give you understanding because the second part is now he has to teach you the book. Yeah. But you just recited it, right? Yeah, just because you recited it doesn't mean you understood it. And he has to teach them hikmah. Now, the hikmah, according to Ash-Shafi, is the sunnah of the Prophet The sunnah of the messenger doesn't end with the messenger. Rather, it ends with the khulafa al-Rashidin because he said, follow my sunnah and the khulafa of the uh, Sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin al-Mahdi al-Mahdi, bite down with, it on, with your molars. Now, when we look at 
the Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib, Sayyidina Uthman bin Affan. There are crystal, there's amazing wisdom that we learn. You might think to yourself, why did things go so bad in the time of Uthman and Ali? There's wisdom to show us how do you legislate, how do you apply the law in chaos? The political process. Yeah, in political chaos too. Mm-hmm. And what we notice that, don't we all know the rule in Surah Al-Hujurat of rebels? Mm-hmm. If someone rebels against the Khalifa, Surah Al-Hujurat, what's the law? Open any law, book of law, of Sharia, fiqh. What does the law say? The law says rebels should be killed. They should be fought and executed or they submit one to one or the other. You cannot have rebellion in the ummah. Sayyidina Uthman, he had rebels, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't kill them. He didn't fight them. Why didn't he fight them? He didn't fight them because he felt that he knew and understood that laws related to rebellion are about benefit of society. And there will be no benefit with a civil war in Medina. Right? It's not a binary. It's not a binary. So he was thinking of what is the purpose of this law. And therefore, if I apply it at this moment, would the purpose, would the overall purpose be affected? Sayyidina Ali came, he did fight the rebels, and he stopped fighting the rebels. And then he fought the rebels again in different situations. Right? So uh, in the Battle of Sufin, he fought them. Then they said, okay, we want to stop. So he stopped. Then the Kharijites fought him. Then they, then they stopped. And so he stopped. So sometimes he fought them, sometimes he didn't. So what did he use? He used judgment on the overarching purpose of the law. But who is it who is doing that? Not me and you. Yes. Some, it was Ali ibn Abi Talib, a great scholar, right? You know, who was obviously beyond the scholar. He's a companion who is a mujtahid, right? So, uh, from carrying on from the same discussion we were having, the very question, you know, explanation you were giving, and one that, you know, point which came to my mind was the non-state actor, the rebels or Khajis you were talking about, the same issues or talking points, we can apply those issues to our times. In- exactly. So the point that we were making is that there is flexibility to the application of the law. But there's also wisdom, which is very subjective and should only be entrusted, you know, the subjective opinions to those who have a proven track record of knowledge and of taqwa and of trustworthiness and of fear of Allah, right? Because the subjective opinions is where, you know, whims can, and limitations and, and desires can take place and fears. So therefore, you know, whims should only really be uh, entrusted or uh, subjective opinions and the wisdoms, quote unquote, should really only be entrusted to those who have a proven track record, right? And that's why we often talk talk about the elders who have proven themselves time and time again. But and also, yeah, how we can apply this concept what you are talking about to our times where we have the parliamentary system or a congress, you know, where the elders are parliamentarians, you know, elected representative. Did they wouldn't have that, you know, legal understanding of Sharia. But that'll be more of a political process, isn't it? And in that, when they are talking about political process, we are talking about their, you know, every nation's own interest. And that's where, you know, uh, we can say a one group, a non-state actor group, approach could be very different from other nation. 
And I think that's where the main fundamental reason, uh, the fundamental point has to come into play where, okay, this, if, if a certain group crosses a red line, that's where we tell them, hey, you know, you have crossed the line and there'll be no uh, lenient approach, you know, political process engagement with you people. Well, check it out. There's been a complete split as the Prophet ﷺ prophesied between the book and the, and the government. Governance. Prophet ﷺ said the Quran and the Sultan will split. So the Sultan is no longer operating based upon the Quran, meaning the religion in general. Um, now, why does that happen? Because the Prophet also said, Minkum man alaykum. Your ruler is a reflection of you. Exactly. The collective ummah has lost the will to apply this sharia seriously in their lives. And therefore, we get rulers who reflect that, right? So if we as an ummah had the collective will, the desire to, to do something, we would do it. Desire and will. There's no such thing as what's practical and what's not. Do you want something or not? And nothing is more impractical than a man becoming a woman and a woman becoming a man. But they did it. There's nothing more impractical than transforming the meaning of marriage. Right? They did it. Why? Because decade after decade of will, they want it. When you want something badly enough, Allah opens a door, whether it's good or bad. Right? When you persist and insist and insist, Allah opens for you. We as an ummah have zero, very little collective will to take this deen and say, oh Allah, I'll change myself to fit the deen. I'm not going to say, oh, this is not practical. Oh, I don't like this. Oh, I need to get a fatwa for this. This is not practical. This doesn't suit the age. No. We don't have that will. If we as an ummah, if millions upon millions upon millions of people had the will to come up with that attitude and say, look, I'm going to wipe my own opinion slate clean. Give me the fiqh that's been agreed upon for centuries, right? So that's what I know the deen is, okay? And I'm going to do it. We can do it. We didn't have the willpower, right? We just don't have the willpower. So, uh, so where do we go from here? It's developing that willpower. Develop the collective willpower amongst the people to have that attitude of, we want this sharia. We want to see it. So let's start seeing it first in you, then in your family, then in your neighbors, and let's get a collective will, right? Once you have a collective will, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. So, one yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so one, please. I just wanted to add one more thing to what Furtan just uh, said, that in the post 9-11 uh, political world of the, West, of the Western countries, you know, especially US, UK, and others, European countries, it has been very difficult to, you know, to merge both, to merge your traditional Islamic learnings with, uh, with uh, modern state narratives. For, for instance, even if you talk about Sharia at a public space in the U.S., you are going to be judged by others, like seriously. And on the other hand, that uh, that dimension of merging uh, tradition and modernity is deeply exploited by by post-colonial states like Pakistan. You know, where they have literally like hijacked concepts like jihad. So it, it has become deeply pro- problematic for us as a youth to understand how we can uh, follow the the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the great merger of tradition and modernity in Islam that our, uh, uh, you know, revered uh, 
philosophers and uh, uh, classical Islamic science, uh, scholars have done. So that that makes it really difficult in the modern context. You know, in the in the and also there is another question that is related to this: is the modern state is as we know it's it's inherently secular. So it becomes really difficult for us to partake uh, politically in the in the processes of happening in our countries. It doesn't matter whether we are in Pakistan or in the U.S. It is. Uh, there are so many things when you know when it comes of when when you talk about politics. There are so many other factors that also need to be taken into consideration. You know. Look, so do we? Do we? Confused as a youth. We can sit and list all the difficulties all day. Right. Allah never guaranteed something is going to be easy. Right. He guaranteed if you persist, okay, as a human being, you will get what you want. If you persist as a nation, you will get what you want. If you persist as a human being to convince your nation of something, either you will succeed or you will have a moderate success and pass it on to the next generation, or you will fail completely and Allah will count you as a martyr. So you're winning either way as an individual. But there is no guarantee of ease. There is a guarantee if you as an individual want to live Sharia. So I have, let's say, I know I don't have a book. Let's say this was the book of doctrine, law, and spirituality right here. I can live this in my life 100% consistent with this. I can. If I insist, I can do it. I can't enforce it on anyone else. All right? I can't guarantee that my people will accept my message or this message, but I could die trying, right? But the, 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 the formula is very simple. It's national will. National meaning like the people's will. Yeah, there's going to be hardship. There's no guarantee from Allah's not hard. And who made it hard? We made it hard on ourselves. And our forefathers, you know, it's haram actually to blame your elders. But mashallah, they're the reason. Yeah. Okay, so it's not the world that's difficult. It's the Muslims who dropped the ball and desired the dunya. As the Prophet said, you fear death and you love this dunya. So this is what they got us. So why are we going to turn around and say, oh, the world is difficult? We made it difficult. So there's no guarantee. But also, I would warn against this mental habit that I guarantee you that the Orientalists would love for us to keep having this mentality. And the enemies of Islam of, uh, oh, let's write a whole long list of why it's not possible. Then we give up, right? So uh, all, I, all we can control is, number one, our own selves. But we have to stick to the formula. If there is an ummah-wide will, it will happen. No, it doesn't matter. The will, it will change the world, right? By will. So yeah, will it happen in our lifetime? Who knows? But we know that that's the path and that's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. You know? So just extending the question of jihad, like uh, it should be understood by the youth and uh, someone wanting to learn uh, Islam as their religion and Islamic rulings. So does the concept of jihad applies in modern times? Uh, when, Like previously, there were no treaties, there were no governors, so, right? So... Uh, it was possible at that time, but right now when there are treaties, when there is governance, when there is proper nation states, so does that concept of jihad still applies in modern times? If not, then what's the uh, 
wisdom of jihad in modern times. There has to, the jihad as a legal term, as opposed to an Arabic term, you have to understand there's a difference. There's the Quranic jihad, which is struggle. It's Arabic language, general usage. There's a fiqhi, which I, is what you're talking about. The fiqhi jihad, which is the, it's war, right? And it has preconditions. But the, if the preconditions are met, then it applies. If the preconditions are not met, then it doesn't apply. Jihad, you can divide it into three categories. Based on the Quran and Hadith and the Fuqaha, the first category being the most obvious one is the defense of your city. And that will still apply. Now, if uh, you know, uh, uh, India were to come and try to conquer Pakistan, I think you'd all get up and pick up your you know, cricket rackets, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have to do something to defend your country. And you'd die a shaheed. Okay? Even if somebody says, you know what, I don't even pray five times a day. I'm not doing this for the sake of Islam. I'm doing it because my country, right? You still die a shaheed, mashallah. Right? May Allah forgive that person. But just defending yourself and your country is the first level. And that will always exist. The second one is quelling rebellions within the country. Surah Al-Hujurat. Okay? And that, who can do that? Only the ruler can do that. The government. And then the third one is expanding the borders. And that is a natural process of civilizations when they have so much cohesion within their nation that they have to, for the health of the nation, expand, right? Like, can you tell Amazon right now, no more expansion? It's is very unhealthy. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it would be very unhealthy, right? When you, if you're breathe, if you're underwater, right? And then all of a sudden you come out of water, you have to fill your lungs with air, right? So that jihad is expansion, okay? Which some nations, the history of, if you look at the history of nations, they have such a cohesion at some point, they must expand or else it will bring like a disease within the nation. And that nation will get sick and die. So they have to expand. I mean, every empire does this. Can you come to the USA after, you know, World War II and say, okay, stop here, don't expand, when the whole world is right in front of you to expand and you have such a cohesion within yourself? Oh, they expanded in a different way, not by colonizing, but in a modern form of expansion, right? So uh, that's the idea of that. So that's the concept. And the question is, do the conditions apply? Are the conditions there? And look, what you had of expansion when you cannot name me five Muslim countries where you can go from the north to the south of the country except that you see litter all the way through the streets. What jihad, jihad are you talking about? When you have the, we have, honestly, rotten countries. To be honest, Turkey and Indonesia, maybe, or Malaysia, maybe you can live in these countries peacefully and happily, and the streets are clean, and the courts will give you justice. So when we talk about jihad, I only see that we're only talking about the defense of the city that is applicable today. Other than that, none of this ISIS and Qaeda or whatever, these, uh, you know, probably propped up organizations, not real organizations. These aren't, these aren't natural organizations. These are propped up. We know what our people look like, right? Mm -hmm. 
You seen these ISIS videos? You know, if this was an organic movement, that video would be like 480p, right? It would be a trashy video. We know our people. So these are propped up movements meant to attract the fools within the ummah and give us a bad name. And they have attracted, they're mostly, you know, Muslims in the ummah, but they've attracted the fools, the ignorant of the ummah to give a bad name to the ummah. So that's my comment on jihad. Dr. Shadi, but all these people, they're people from us, right? From our society. ISIS. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I think that the leadership and the funding is coming somewhere else. Yes. That's a deeper question. But I mean, that's just, that's just a speculative theory of mine based upon common observation. That's all. You know, when we apply the same concept uh, of jihad and all that stuff, uh, as you mentioned, because uh, it's a legal term and we can 100% apply it, but we have to understand the context behind it. Yeah. Because these organizations, non-state actors, they are interpreting, interpreting Quran and Hadith and Fiqh from, you know, uh, from 6th, 7th century. They're rebels. They're, like, liter- they're literalists. They're rebels. And they should be killed. And, and they don't understand. And that's, I think, the main point of our discussion was they're forgetting. As, actually, it's not about them. It's about pretty much all you know, Muslim majority countries where they fail to understand that now we have become a nation state. The rules applies. Some of those concepts, they are genuine concepts. But, but you know, the main, you know, the rulings, the understanding and the context doesn't apply to in, even in jihad, even in blasphemy, because now we are living in, uh, in you know, multicultural society where we have Hindus, where we have Christians, Muslims, Jews, and some of the ruling, they may apply, but those contexts, you know, those checkbox have to be met. And in most of the cases, they are not met. And that's why these small problems, which actually poisoned the whole entire society because they are looking at 7th, 8th century rulings. Well, it's, it's, we all have 7th, 8th century rulings, but the question is, the, are the conditions met for them? Exactly. And are they being applied flexibly and with wisdom? And are they understood properly? Right? So it's not about the ruling being from the past because Salah is a 7th century ritual, Right. Hajj is a 7th century ritual. but the, So it's not the question of whether it be from the past. Because that was the best century. Mm-hmm. right? The greatest of generations is my generation, right? So it's more about, are, is it understood properly? Are the preconditions understood? Is the law by itself understood? Are the uh, requirements met? And are they being applied with wisdom? Right? So that's really the question. I, yeah, uh, I would take I the have, question from Rahat. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I have this question that you said that all these extre- extremist groups, they are not from us. But I am from that part, like from the northern part of Pakistan. And well, yeah, I don't think I, the leadership of ISIS is organically yeah, the, grown. Yeah. yeah, so in our part, it's the Taliban. It's not uh, uh, ISIS and yeah. it's like, yeah, the offshoot of Al-Qaeda so, and Taliban. Canadian organizations. Yeah. yeah, so and I have witnessed it like firsthand that it, it was from us and the, 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 the religious scholars were from the uh, traditional uh, Hanfi thought, school of thought. And all those who opposed them were the one that are rare, are the one that are the modern scholars. 
So you're saying that, okay, uh, if someone is not following the traditional school of law, so he is somehow, he is not understanding Islam. Uh, so it's, 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 a, uh, it's actually making conflict for me that I have seen in my country that all those religious scholars who are following these uh, strict school of thoughts, they actually supported all these extremist organizations and well, the mainstream religious scholars. A branch, a branch of Hanafis in a certain time and a certain place are not rep- does not represent Hanafism. They represent their understanding of Hanafism. You have to go to Turkey. You have to go to Syria. You have to go to India. So a madhab is not represented by one person or one group of people. Uh, who, who we are talking about? Let's say he's saying the, the, the Taliban or something, right? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not familiar with the group, but he did mention a group, right? The yeah. Taliban. I'm not familiar with their actual specifics. I, obviously, we know who the Taliban is, yeah. but I don't know their specifics. I don't know their leaders. But I can tell you just rationally, one small group of human beings, which you could probably count as 100 scholars or 20 scholars, do they represent the entire tradition of Ahnaf? No, they're fallible. They're fallible. Their interpretation and their policy making is fallible. I don't have to agree with it. I mean, I'm sure you can get Syrian or Turkish or Indian or Chinese Hanafi scholars who would disagree and would do something different. So that's the application and interpretation uh, uh, of one context. So we can't say that that's their, their not, not the be-all and end-all. So that's how we say that that group you can disagree with while the concept of the madhahib uh, being the paths of Islam still stands. So I have one more question on that. It's like, why we have restricted ijtihad to late 10th century and 11th century? And after that, like, we are not actually promoting that thing that, okay, Muslims, our Muslim scholars should come with ijtihad. Uh, so why it's been like restrained to that era? Is it like we have a lot of issues like mortgage and all those, the modern uh, financial issues. Um, and I'm not hearing a lot of uh, opinion from our uh, modern day scholars who believe in the traditional Islam. Well, first of all, remember, we did say that the Ijtihad is, first of all, it's still open. Ijtihad. But meet the criterion, right? Meet the criterion. We're five of us in a room. One of you has a toothache, okay? Um, can anyone extract the tooth? No. Does that mean we don't believe in dentistry? No, we just don't have the conditions. We haven't met the qualifications. So the door of had is open, but do it. And how do we know that someone is in Wichtahed? The scholars will agree. Yes, he has mastered everything required. He's going to come up the ranks. As Muhammad Ali was asked, is there anyone in the world who can beat you? He said, right now, no. He said, how do you know that? He said, because if there was, we would see him coming through the ranks, right? Hmm. He's not going to come out of nowhere. He's going to have to have fought and people know about him and, and we talk about him, right? He's not going to come from Mars. So likewise, if there would be an absolute mujtahid who can go directly to the book and the sunnah, he would have to come from our world. We would know him. We would see him coming up and the scholar would say, yes, yes, you've mastered this. Yes, you've mastered this. Yes, you've mastered this. Until finally, they would confer upon him. That's how Ijtihad works. That's how any 
profession works, right? But so in saying that, I'm saying that the door of it had, of course, is open if the person meets the qualifications. But what is more practical that people have met the qualifications is what I said earlier is mujtahid in the nazila, mujtahid within the school, taking analogies from within his school uh, and the rulings within his school to give us solutions for matters. Right? So, yeah, just a follow-up question. So if a mujtahid or a scholar who studied Quran and Hadith on, his, on him or her, herself and he didn't follow any proper school of thought. So what's your take on that? Like, I have, I know a lot of people in then uh, Mukhaludin that they don't follow the imams or school of thoughts. And they so say they're that, self-taught. Yeah. And then they say that, okay, the, the first source of religion uh, is Quran and then Hadith and then you come to the fiqh. So if someone is going in that order rather than going from top to a bottom to top. So how you Okay. And he's a scholar? Yeah, there are scholars, yeah. Okay, who deemed him a scholar? Uh, uh, who deemed Abu him a scholar? Abu no, for, I'm just asking rationally. Let's take yeah. it rationally. Who deemed that person to be a scholar? I, I consider them a scholar. Like, there are few people in our country. So you instance, conferred upon him scholarship? Yes. That means you must be a scholar. You bestowed also, upon him that he's a scholar. That means you know how to assess scholarship. You, that means you're a scholar. For a Muslim, I, does it like, should I have to uh, bestow scholarship on someone or should I take the opinion of a person who is, like, he, is giving, he is giving me opinion based on Quran and Hadith, right? And then another scholar who believe in the traditional Islam, he is giving me opinion about an issue and he is giving okay. his evidences. So... so we work, this is purely rational, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's reference-based, yep. right? Yep. Can you furnish, you want a job? You furnish references that you can do the job. Can I furnish upon you a reference that you're an IT expert? When I'm a study of Islamic law, student of Islamic law, you're, let's say hypothetically, you're an IT guy. You want to sh- sign up to work with some company. Can I write you a reference that says you're an IT guy? A great IT guy? Yeah. I can't write you a reference, right? Yeah. My so reference... don't know me, yeah. My reference for you, you can rip it up. It's meaningless, right? Yeah. Only someone who knows IT can give a reference for another IT person. Okay, Shadi. Right? I have a point here to make. So, so therefore, uh, nobody can come and speak Quran says and Hadith says. I would like, before I take from him, this is very safe, right? Can you please provide me before you talk and tell me what to do in my life with a reference? Are there, and you're not the only human being in the world. There's other people studying. Can you give me a reference from others in the world who have said that you are capable and worthy and people should listen to you and I should go to Allah in the afterlife on Yom Al-Qiyamah on your word? Isn't that a fair request? Provide me with a reference, right? Some guy's going to work on the gas in your house. You know that if you mess up on gas, you die, right? The house could blow up. The gas could leak and you all die. When a guy comes, I'm going to say, are you a licensed whatever? Plumber, licensed gas, whatever. Yes or no? Who gave him the license? The local mosque? 
or you know some agency that works in the gas and plumbing the agency right who's in the agency other experts in the field and who gave them the license their the previous generation of experts in gas and who gave them the license the previous experts all the way back until the technology was founded well why would i treat my akhira any differently i want references i want a lot of references i want that that professional proof we talk about social proof right mm-hmm. you want to buy a product to go to a restaurant you read the reviews of the customers one review is it good for you no two reviews good for you no i want to see 20 30 reviews before i spend my money right i want 10 20 you know 12 reviews from other men of god who have devoted their lives who themselves have reviews about them before i take akhira knowledge from somebody that i'm going to go meet god with on the on the day of judgment So That's here comes the concept a, of isnad. We we summarize that and call it isnad. So here comes a question: Like, uh, does that mean understanding even understanding the Islamic rulings Sharia is restricted to the trained scholars? Because I mean, talking realistically, it's it's a uh, it's 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 very natural that everyone cannot be a scholar, right? Someone would be from a different field. So, don't you think that restricts understanding rulings? Sharia, fiqh, uh, and everything to a scholar, and how would a common man, if he has a knowledge of Hadith, Quran, right? He has read it, understood it, and he he has no scholar around him, right? So what's wisdom? What's hikma then? If he can't use that, and he can't do istihad, and he has no 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 one around him, so what around him? Allah has made the internet for a reason. Allah's expanded the population of the Muslims so much. There is Muslims in Brazil, in Chile, okay, in Alaska, in Japan. How is that poor Muslim going to learn his deen? You think Allah has left him alone? Nobody can go and type. I guarantee you, every Muslim in the world, if he if his passions and desires wants to look at something haram, he can go and type very well and find it, right or wrong. So if his akhira is concerned, you can connect yourself. I mean, how did you meet? How did we connect? I don't know you. You don't know me. We connected, right? So Allah Taala has never left the Muslim without an avenue to learn. And why did Allah create, for example, nasikh and mansukh, abrogated and not abrogated, to make us dependent upon knowledge, upon experts? Why did Allah Taala create? I mean, why is farming so difficult? To make us dependent upon farmers, do I say, well, if farming is so difficult, then I have to rely upon a farmer? Okay, so rely upon him. You're a doctor; they rely upon you. Another person is an IT expert; we rely upon them. So there are guilds and professions, right? And the access to those people is there, so, right? Okay. So that arg- that idea is put effort. You want to learn how to drive a car. You want to go to school. You want to get your internet connected. Don't you call somebody? Don't you move your legs and your fingers on the computer and pick up the phone and do effort? Nobody says, "I'm not going to the supermarket. I want to grow the food myself. 
I don't want to be independent. Why should I rely upon the supermarket? It's the same thing. Right. But, uh, Dr. Shadi, I, I just have a point here to make. There are schools actually which uh, which sort of try to argue that they, they actually argue that the whole of uh, four mazhabs, mazhabs or their Islamic law is actually you know done by humans or completed by humans. So they they might uh, have done something wrong, you know. So we actually need to do ijtihad on those classical teachings as well, you know. And also uh, just adding to what Rahat was trying to say. That if I am here studying here in this room and I study Ghazali, for example, and he gives us like eight reasons uh, for for a scholar to become a mujtahid, and if a certain scholar in Pakistan, uh, uh, according to my personal beliefs or my rationality, he fil- uh, fills that category, so am I? Uh, so is is that is that good for me if I consider him as a mujtahid and then started start following him instead of? following the four mothers because uh, to me he f- uh, fills uh, those categories of much the hits uh, explained by Ghazali okay I mean let's take a look at it again this is totally rational uh, there's no taqlid in this it's a rational topic um, they said that the imams of the madhabs were humans and therefore they could make mistakes right mm-hmm. yeah they also are humans and can make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. So we are all humans who can make mistakes. So what is the best when you have all subjective people, then the truth will be in matters of religion where there's less bias, right? You're not you're a human being no different than anyone else. So therefore, whenever there's subjectivity and thought, the safety and the correctness will be with the consensus of intellects where biases are removed, limitations of understanding are removed, right? So logically speaking, he too is the human being that can make a mistake. So if he yeah. can out, comes out and announces, I've discovered that all four medhabs were wrong all this time. I ask myself, okay, because they're humans, but you also are a human. So you're one person going against 100,000 people. Both of, all of you are humans. No one's smarter than anyone else here, right? And in fact, if there is bias, don't we all have biases and limitations and subjectivity? So when I combine my idea, you think we're 100,000 people over five countries, over 10 centuries, they're not going to suffer the same bias the same limitation and the same subjectivity. So rationally speaking, it is foolish to go with the one versus the ten or the hundred versus the thousand. Right? So it's a, a matter of eliminating subjectivity, bias, and limitation. Okay. So my another very small question related to it is that this... Uh, so uh, there is a big difference how should we approach uh, religion for instance if I'm trying to learn Islam and I'm just starting it should I consider uh, my uh, you know should I consider rationality first should should I consider my you know rational knowledge first or my rational uh, blessings that uh, Allah has given me or should I consider my faith first and then uh, you know just start start exploring Islam and its its ilmul kalam and theology and all so that also uh, I, I mean how should I start because if I talk to my friend and he is going to ask me about Miraj, for example, 
and or he asks me about any other such matters which are very which uh, to me uh, which are difficult for me to explain you know on a rational basis so we we, we need to have faith for that so uh, what what would you what will you say should, should we consider revelation first or the reason first because uh, in the times that we are living in rationality and your uh, personal freedom and personal speech uh, becomes very important you know so how are we going to tackle with these people i would say revelation is built upon rationality yeah we trust our trust in the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is based on a reason that we can think about that for example when he came his reputation was established right so therefore allah has furnished you with a reason to say yes i trust this person and i can furnish you i could put pen to paper why i trust this person so i would know that revelation is always based on rationality the most rational thing to do is to be a skeptic in your own opinion and to be trusting in the consensus of human opinions and in matters of religion like the ayah that i opened with allah has guaranteed us that the large consensus of the muslims will never be astray it will be on guidance not of the muslims of the muslim scholars does that mean the scholars of uh egypt today no it means all the countries of all the centuries so it's upon me now to start digging in andalusia what did they say here but what did they say what is and then until i find and i realize okay everywhere they came to this conclusion that this ayah means this that this hadith means that so i start to trust in that consensus okay and that consensus is not correct just because it's a group who vote, who like voted for it no there's a reason and now i could start looking at the evidences that they offered our scholars are not uh allowed to hide their evidences and that's why they wrote books the quran says over 270 times the word clarification clarify show the people if you have an argument show subhanallah sharia is a open source right it's not like apple where they close everything off and you have no clue what's going on it's open source you want to know bukhari's justification why he selected there's hadiths it's fine it's open source you can go study them study his chains you want to know why ash-shafi for example has a certain ruling those books are all available right and those scholars came to certain conclusions for reasons dr shadi isn't it possible that when we are talking about you know current rulers uh, or scholars of one country if if you don't agree with them you think that you know they are too aligned with the state or in their propaganda etc very possible very possible yeah so isn't it possible that let's say i'm taking a you know a judgment from uh, a fiki issue trying to resolve that issue taking an opinion from an egyptian or a saudi scholar or any other scholar uh, isn't it possible that con- the they are giving a you know a they they have a bias a political yeah. bias yeah and also and that's very well possible that they are giving ruling on the basis of from their own cultural perspective and that 100%. may not that may not apply in my country 100% that's why modern issues my scholar my one of my teachers told me he said when it comes to a modern issue just wait 
and see where the opinion settles around the ummah. Don't just jump on one opinion because there's a new matter. It's only 10 years old and only five people have written anything on it. He said, just be patient. Wait. Okay. Let it just sink. Into, yeah. Let, let it sink into the intellects of the rest of the ummah. They all have brains too. Mm-hmm. There are many scholars in many countries. Let's all just wait and see what the oh, majority, where the winds are going, where the scholars are going, not winds, because that's like whimsical, but where the scholars are headed, where is Ahl Sunnah comfortable with on this subject? Right? Because the conditions are not being met in that particular society. It's not being met. And here's the thing, though. Let's say you're, I'm in a gym. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to go with it. I have no other choice. And may Allah accept or forgive, right? And if he's wrong, we'll see the result in this world and he'll be forgiven in the afterlife. So let's say someone gives you the fatwa. Say, let's say you're jammed. I mean, many people, they are in a situation, I need the fatwa right away. I can't wait 10 years, right? So they go to a pious scholar, that pious scholar, you know, I don't want to write the fatwa. I, I want to wait, but Sheikh, I need it now. So he writes you the fatwa, okay? Because he knows that you need it. He may be wrong. You're both forgiven if he's pious and you're pious. He, you're both forgiven, but you will see the error in this life. You'll see that in 10 years, this didn't work out. This was no good, right? And the other scholars are seeing it too. And they're going to say, no, no, we, we don't like this direction, right? Or they may say the opposite. They may say, yeah, you were right all along. The sheikh was right all along, right? And we all have come to agree that there's no other choice except this. So that's why if there's a dire need, you take the fatwa from a pious person with the pious intention, and you will, inshallah, be forgiven even if it's a mistake. Because the Prophet ﷺ guaranteed, the judge, he gives the ruling for the sake of Allah with taqwa. He is rewarded, not just forgiven, rewarded. And the one who follows him, is forgiven, if, even if it's a mistake. So look at how generous Allah is here, right? It's almost like in COVID-19, can you blame anybody? Yeah. Does anyone have a global pandemic before, right? There's no precedent for this. So, okay, we're going to learn. You might not be right. We're going to learn. And we come to a consensus after a while, but nobody should be blamed because everyone tried to do their best. And we've never done this before. So when no one's to be blamed. So when there's a new matter... The elderly, known scholars who have reputations amongst the scholars, they should speak, they should give their rulings, and we'll wait and see. And then over time, it'll settle into the uh, ummah, and we'll see how it settles. So that's how basically we interact with situations. So you have to see that this new matters, it's a living tradition that we live in here. It's living, living and, it's from, yeah. and it's rational too. Yeah. It's rational, right? Uh, actually, I have a question. Like, uh, after Itmam al-Hujja, so, and, and the act, uh, Itmam al like after there's, yeah, so, and the act of takfir and blasphemy. So, after Itmam al-Hujja and after uh, the advent of Rasul uh, or Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, uh, can the act of takfir be implemented and uh, is it, I mean, uh, is it possible for anyone to just kill anyone commit, uh, committing blasphemy just as happened in Pakistan recently? So, and, and they're very much promoted, they're very much liked by the people because they, they say that they, they are actually the lovers of the Prophet. 
So uh, it would be very... Uh, Look, very love of the Prophet is a wonderful thing, but we have law and order. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. We have laws. And just like we said that these mujahid, uh, fake mujahid, I would say, uh, false jihadi groups, they're non-state, non-state actors. This non-state jihad is unaccepted in Islam except in one condition in which we said that there is a, a invasion of your country and your, uh, you know, the, the, the president of the land is fighting back and the army is fighting. You may also fight back the enemy on your own, right? You don't have to be part of the army unless he orders you, then you have to obey him. But let's say you're out of reach. He's only controlling 500,000 people army or 50,000 people army. All right, that's all he can control. You can fight on your own with a militia all you want, unless he says otherwise. Unless he says, go home, I have a plan. Every act like that, punishment, war, must be in accordance with the state action. If the state is not taking the action, it's not against you. Right, but can it? Can we declare that someone made takfir or blasphemy? We can declare it, yeah, but we just can't do anything about it. Okay, I can do something about it. I could not talk to the person anymore. I could not buy his books. I could not let my kids play with his kids. Right? I can go on the other side of the street if he's walking on the the street. I can do all those things I want. Right? I can believe and tell my friends. This is blasphemy, right? Don't talk to him. Don't associate with him. Don't praise him, right? I can do that all I want. Nobody can stop me, but I can't go kill him. So this is what you know, we were talking about in the beginning of our conversation that these people who take you know, uh, weapons in their own hand, take law in their own hand, they, they take actually precedent from the early times. When there were, you know, no nation state. Yeah, and, that's what I was talking, the pre-prophetic era and the post-prophetic era. So does the rulings remain same? From those times that in front of Prophet, Prophet Wasallam, this incident happened. So now we can do the same thing. Okay, and that's so, where I think most of the people forget we were living in a colonial era or in a, you know, uh, before nation, nation state. So we have laws. And no, that's, that's their, their era is somewhere else. Their error is in going with their own selves to the original sources when they have no authority to do so. They should instead have went to the madhahib and got the dominant and going opinions of the madhahib. So this is a person who is going into, is going into the woods and cutting up, you know, raccoons and picking berries and mixing it up and saying, here, here's medicine for cancer. And then people are dying. You cannot go directly to the sources and come with the ruling unless you're a mujtahid imam. You see now the benefit of this order, hierarchy? Uh-huh. So yeah, it seems like the hierarchy, This it's not a hierarchy of, it's, it's not a hierarchy that comes without qualifications, right? You see now why we have order in our Islamic law so yes, we may tell a very nice modernist, sorry, your word means nothing to us, but it's the same method that's also telling these vigilantes, your word means nothing either, right? So because basically we're talking about the breakdown of Islam, you know, the knowledge actually, and, and, and the Muslim majority states actually. Talking about what? 
the lack of knowledge among the people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the lack, and, and I'll tell you who. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let me tell you one thing before we go to Rahatullah. It's the same people who said, forget scholars. Let's do it ourselves. That same mentality is by used by ISIS. They don't follow any madhahib, right? They don't, they wouldn't stand to the scrutiny of any, of even a middle level student of knowledge. Right, don't they follow the, because most of the times they are following their local leaders, religious scholars. Like in our country, yeah, in our country, that's what is happening. Like those people are supported by the uh, local or the the, stream, the, scholars. the mainstream religious leaders. Not a single religious leader is opposing them. Are saying that it's against the Islamic order. So that that's where we are coming from. Like okay, in our country, it's the opposite. It seems that's a problem. And you you say that like okay, we, have, we we cannot confine it to a single place or a single country. But we are a country of two hundred million people. So we have to look inward. Like I can't bring a fitwa from Turkey or Egypt and tell them my people that okay, believe it, because our people are looking at our uh, religious leaders. So I mean I don't I don't know the situation uh, specifically, but it is possible that a large group of scholars can come to a um, a policy or political error. That's possible. Yeah, that's very possible, right? And you may be in a situation of grave hardship, and that's why someone would look outside of those scholars and say, "Let's look at." You know, someone outside this box. But I would say, no, still don't look outside this box. Your specific order that you received was no good. But you should still observe a sense of tradition and reason at reasoning in our uh, scholarship and our fiqh. You may have to look into another box of Hanafi school of thought. You may have to look to Syrians or you know, Indians or Turks or other schools within Pakistan. Maybe even there are other groups within Afghanistan. So I, I do understand that you ha- the, the, the jam that you're in and how that this type of thing would make anyone with any common sense make a blanket statement or a judgment that these traditional scholars are all, this is no good because look at the result that we got. Yeah. Right? It's almost like making an order you know, from a company and all the fruit is rotten. You think that all of their orders are rotten. The whole company's rotten, you know, but I would probably tell you that we do have a system of the Madahib and you have unfortunately gotten, you know, a bad uh, order. And the same pattern can be applicable to pretty much all the Islamic rulings, especially we are, because we are talking about them from Pakistan perspective. And it uh, literally poisoned the entire society. And the hate, the perpetual hate. Not, a, I mean, people, we used to scapegoat other people now. Now we are scapegoating each other. Now we are finding, okay, who is now Gustafi Rasulia? I, I really hate these things, honestly. And I would not blame a person. I can't, how can I blame a person yeah. who turns his back on all of that scholarship? If that's the results, I cannot blame a person, but I would simply advise them that look outside of that culture, that political milieu, that environment for maybe that environment has truly corrupted 
the scholarly class. Go look into another country and look at the scholarly class in that country. Go look at individuals. Explore outside of this rotten pot. This pot may be rotten. There may be other pots that are not. right. And I think many people have that. For example, in Egypt, the Sufis tend to be those who just follow any uh, you know, tyrannical ruler. And they seem to be the permissive of heresy. So many Arabs growing up and they say, look at these people. So this Tasawuf is all wrong, right? It's all bad. Let me follow the Salafis. Okay. Uh, because at least they like to get evidence and they like to follow the knowledge properly and they don't, not all of them, follow these tyrannical rulers. But I would say to them, wait, hold on a second. No, you're making a mistake. Go look at the people of Tasawuf in other countries, right? In Pakistan, I don't think it's like that. They are pl- totally apolitical. Yeah. They go look at the people of Tasawwuf from other centuries. Get out of that milieu. Islam is not what Egypt says is Islam. Yeah. Right? Or North Africa says is Islam. That may be their error. So go look outside. And that's why, honestly, travel and learning and history is very, very important. Because it frees you from being bound in these binaries of my culture and my society. So just as you're coming upon these rock and a hard place, we also have it in Egypt. Very similar. Rock and a hard place where all the traditional scholars of Tasawuf, I mean, it's like all of them almost, very few of them have any other different opinion. They're all subject to this political bias, which I don't want to be part of. So I'm going to go you know, to scholars elsewhere. I'm just giving hypotheticals here, right? So, yeah. Go ahead, Rahul. Okay. So, yeah, one, one more thing. So, like, when we, are, when we are talking about fiqh and Islamic laws, so most of the time we are uh, talking about the societies in which Muslims are in majority. So, what, so do Islam have, like, the specific rulings regarding the uh, societies in which Muslims are in minorities? Like in the Western world, and we see all those these like stabbing and stuff happening in Europe. And would those rules be applicable because the conditions are not being met? There are certain, um, you know, there, there. From what I see, the general Sharia is going to apply when it comes if you're talking about the question of um, law and order and society and 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 taking the law into your own hands. So. In Europe, they went and stabbed those guys who drew the prophet or blasphemed the prophet. We would say the same thing as haram, right? For someone to do that. There's no different, right? Um, We would go a step further. In Pakistan, you can stand up and say, oh, governor, fear Allah and change this constitution and fix it and apply the law of Allah. You can say that if you want to, right? You can say... No, don't do this. Use wisdom. Teach the people first. Make them love the Sharia first. Then apply the law. You can say that too. But we, us in the West, we have no, we can't say that, right? We have a bigger problem. We can't even support any of these political parties unless you're supporting them saying, you know, this is the lesser of two evils. In which case, you know, like I'd like to invite, 
you know, a presidential candidate so-and-so to talk to our community because you are the lesser of two evils, right? So uh, we, we can't even advise him because we would have to exit the framework of belief completely, right? On what basis will I give him any advice? On what basis, right? So we have a bigger problem. And that's why many people who get involved in political activism, they oftentimes, they have no other choice, but they have to exit the framework of the Qur'an. And and by, by exiting the framework of the Qur'an, it really brings a lot of problems and a lot of contradictions. They end up fighting for matters that are prohibited in our law, right? Mm-hmm. Because they've politics, exited the framework. Isn't politics, is, this is all about politics because you're trying to engage with those people and at the same time by engaging with the like-minded, you, you, have, you know that not all of your conditions are going to be met. Uh, or maybe those, uh, some of those things which you wish is for your community. But there'll be, you know, there'll be chances that out of five, there'll be at least two will be, you know, uh, taken into account. Well, see, see, the problem is that, uh, like we said, everything, all the world refers by, you know, references and track record, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to get something done politically, if you want to be a political actor, the politician in front of you, he's going to look and he's going to ask, like, what's this person's track record? What's the references? Who does he know? What is he up to? So you have to establish that track record, right? And you have to operate within parties. Mm-hmm. Politics operates within teams. Medhebs, right? They're medhebs. You can't just come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You need to have a track record within that medheb. But that medheb, the left or the right, the Democrats and the Republicans, there are matters within them that you can never support. But in order to gain traction, you may need to be on the record supporting certain things. Because it serves my interest. Huh? No, because, because, yeah, because the people they want to work, in order to gain any traction in politics, you have to operate in a tribe, right? And that tribe will judge you. Are you standing up for the principles of this tribe? Show us, you know, wh- where have you stood up for our principles? And if, if out of 10 principles and policies, three of them are forbidden in Islam, right? then you, you're, the, those people will have to make a choice. Either I play the game and I disobey Allah and I try to find a workaround for it or I don't play the game at all. And that's a big problem in the West. And I don't see a solution. Okay. I really don't see a middle, I don't see a middle example. I don't see anybody who's saying, here, I'm playing the game. Uh, the Democrats all support me. But I have never stood up for anything forbidden. I haven't seen it. Right. So unless until somebody comes and models that, it's all talk. So, uh, Dr. there's a different question on that. As Dr. Uh, Jonathan Brown wrote an article on LGBTQ and you had a conversation on that. So yeah. it might be a repeat question, but still, I just wanted to clear that. So he said that when it's implemented on a political level, right? So it, yeah. it's not a, a fiki issue. It's, it's something very political. So as he mentioned that in some states, the Sharia law is banned, right? Yeah. So that questions the marriage of Muslim community, right? So how do someone deal with that? Like someone can get up and uh, uh, get into the court against that person. Like they won't consider uh, the Sharia law. 
right? So the, yeah. Okay, let's, the, let's <laughs> divide it into two parts. The first part is, again, in your tasawur, in your conception, there is a separation of political and fiqh, right? When we make a political decision, is Allah watching us and judging us? Or is the off button have been pressed? Is he going to take us to account on the same standard? He is. Right? We're still answerable to Allah. Hmm. Okay? And you may do something haram. And Allah will forgive you if there is a dire need to do so. And dire need in sharia is physical. Will you die? Will you lose a limb? Will you go blind? Will you go homeless? That's dire need. If the answer is no, I'm not. I just won't get elected to office. Or the university won't, uh, you know, uh, they won't like me in the liberal arts universities. And they won't give me a position at Harvard or Yale or Princeton. Okay? They won't let me publish. You won't die. You can get another job. So those aren't dire needs. So that's the first thing. Now, the second one, can you repeat what you said about the court? Because I didn't get that exactly. So like if someone, uh, when, when the Sharia law is banned, right? He, the state is interfering in between the, like the personal matters marriage. So if nikah nama is not conceded, if nikah is not conceded, right? If it's not conceded by the state, the, it, it's not considered valid. Then someone can go against me if I'm married. Then they can go against me. Then I'm committing something wrong. Is nikah is not conceded when when the um, Sharia is the Sharia doesn't forbid you from getting a civil marriage certificate. It just says that in order to be alone with somebody, you have to a contract. You have to get a Islamic Sharia certificate as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so where is the contract? Where is the conflict? Yeah, because I just had that confusion, so I just wanted to make it clear. In fact, according to some scholarship, you have to get an official state certification as well, because that's the only way to guarantee rights. And of course, all the imams, as a job professional protocol of mosques, masajid don't issue sharia certificates for marriage unless you have already gotten a... uh, civil marriage application. So you have to, so the Sharia, they're, they're not going to go outside of, they're not going to contradict the state for that. Mm-hmm. That pretty much answers that. So there was another uh, article by Johnson Brown uh, on Hadood law and uh, the, the punishments of that. So in modern times, uh, when talking to like a non-Muslim friend, like we are in a community, we are in a very global community, so we have uh, friends from different ethnicity. So how would you explain someone about the Hadood law and the punishments? They, someone very rational who considered very barbaric acts, right? So how could someone explain them uh, that these acts are basically against the will of God or something like that? So how do you well, explain? Bar- barbarism and all that, that's emotional. That's an argument from disgust, Right. That's not rational. And the only way to respond to an argument of disgust is a counter-argument of disgust, right? Mm-hmm. So wait a second, you guys having drone strikes on Pakistan and you want to talk to us about, you know, barbarism? That's the only way to respond to an argument of disgust is a counter-argument of disgust showing him his own absurdity. 
right? So hold on. You want to talk about, um, you, you want to talk about, you know, moral and human behavior. Yet your society deems it legal, you know, for a man to urinate on a woman if he's going to pay her and she's willing to do it. That's allowed in your country. He urinates on her as a pornographic, you know, entertainment or whatever you want to call it. Or that you guys have actually maimed hundreds of thousands of people, don't have limbs anymore because of drone strikes. But you want to talk to us about that? So hold on, your civilization only 200 years ago, 300 years ago, was pulling people in, in, in chains and making them slaves, right? And working them to death. And you were lynching and burning. And now you're lecturing us. Hold on a second, you're the guys who, it's your people, your grandfathers, are the ones who dropped two, atom, two, two atom bombs or whatever on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. And people's eyes, their eyeballs melted down their eyes. And this is the civilization that wants to judge another civilization? Right? Your civilization has lasted 200 years. It's, it's what, 250 years? But and it's are you saying multiple, that Islam is a peaceful religion? Because we are claiming that... You are saying you are responding one emotion with another emotion. You have to understand in Munadhara, there's rational arguments, there's emotional arguments, and there's authoritative arguments. You respond rational arguments with reason. You respond emotional arguments with counter-emotions. You respond authorities with a, with a uh, uh, attacking the authority, the trustworthiness of the authority. So you have to understand what's coming at you. Is it a football, a baseball, or a basketball? Which one is coming at me? So that you should know how to catch it. There's a way to catch a basketball versus a hockey puck versus a baseball. We Muslims oftentimes respond to emotional arguments with reason and we look stupid and we cannot win because we don't know the basic game of munadhara, of debate. <clears throat> it's actually very simple, but once you learn it, you actually be like, wow, I'm free. I'm free because I'm not going to be attacked anymore. I know how to respond to this jujitsu. Right? I know how to respond to this. That's true. But so, uh, good advice for married couple as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's exactly great advice for a married couple because a man will respond to an emotional, oftentimes women, you know, and there's probably, you know, a big generalization. There is a rational argument, but that's only the rapper. In reality, she's upset at something that you did emotionally. That's even true at psychological level. Yeah, that's what it is. If you upset her emotionally, then every word that comes into your, out of your mouth will be unacceptable rationally until you solve it emotionally. And you don't mm -hmm. solve anything emotionally with an argument or a rational proof, right? Or evidence. Dr. Jadi, to your point about uh, agreeing to the platform, which uh, I think Rahat or Abdurman talked about, and you gave your opinion that when you're... When you're Agreeing to one party, you're basically agreeing to their agenda. And is that what you were, what you said, right? Yeah, I said that the way politics works is in tribes. Mm -hmm. If you really want to get something done in politics, you have to join a tribe. 
Yeah. Right. In, in big level politics. I'm not talking about the locality, the township or something like that. The township doesn't matter. But in the big level politics, you have to operate as a tribe. And tribes only support those who have a track record of publicly defending the policies of the tribe. Right. Then we can say you can be. Yeah. They, then they put you up as one of their people. So in order to play this game, if a Muslim wants to be a Democrat, he's got to show public you know, positions on things. He's got to go on record supporting certain policies. He wants to be a Republican, he's got to go on record supporting certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take... Because, uh, uh, give me a minute. Because no, we are talking about, especially in American context, for, especially for Muslims. Isn't it more about survival? And when you're talking about survival, so you have to align with a polity or a party or a group, which actually, you know, give you some chance. On the other hand, you know, another party, which is basically trying to rip you off. Well, which, which party are Chinese Americans aligned with? I'm sorry? Which party are Chinese Americans aligned with? Again, that, but that's a debatable question, isn't it? Okay, so that so there's no clear-cut answer, right? Yeah. But they're doing very well. They are, yeah. So how are they doing well when they're not aligned with one party or another? So therefore, the premise that to survive, we have to align with one of the two parties has been shown to be faulty. But those, but those alliances can be changed. It's not a rigid one. You can change if, if you think the other parties has come up with a better plan and they listen to you, they engage with you, you can join them. So you can become a swing vote, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, depends. Whoever, whoever suits me at this juncture, I'll go with vote with them. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, and, I, and my opinion was that this is more of a political question rather than a religious or a fiki question, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it is, uh, as long as it doesn't contradict matters of Sharia. It is. And, and in your heart, you, you don't need to support them because out of 10, eight, on eight points, you are agreeing or they are agreeing with your, you know. So as a voter, you're correct. As a politician, it's different because a voter, right. I, I don't need to support everything that you believe in in order for me to deem you the lesser of two evils. Actually, it's and easy for politician, isn't it? Because they can go to Congress and... They don't need to, uh, you know, uh, you know, vote on that certain certain legislation. No, politicians will not survive unless they join a tribe. Just like an Islamic scholar mm-hmm. will not gain traction with scholarship unless he is in a medhab. It's just how it works, right? A, a politician will not. A politician will not get far unless he's either Democrat or Republican. But even in those tribes, people agree with their entire, I mean, one off or two points off of their agenda, is it? You can disagree on the lesser points, no problem. But you yeah. can't disagree on the bigger points. You can't disagree on Israel. You can't disagree on LGBT if you're in the Democratic Party. You can't disagree on Israel if you're in the Republican Party. Well, so pick which... which STD do you want to have, right? That's yeah. basically what you end up with, right? Yeah. So um, at local level, fine. Yeah, you can become a mayor, right? As an independent, you might win. But to get there at the national level, Washington, D.C., 
you're going to be one of the two parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, let's take a question from Soman because uh, uh, I just want to be okay. cool. Okay, so I have two small questions. The first one is related to this popular uh, decision taken by the Turkish government on Hagia Sophia. So what do you think is going to be a fiki, uh, truly, I think truly is not the right word, like the classical Islamic perspective on this very modern issue of Hagia Sophia? And my second question is related uh, to, as we already discussed, the collective will of people. You know, we are seeing that that, is, that has been corrupted, corrupted for years because of colonization and other internal issues. So how do you think we can improve on that? Because we are still living in an imperialist age, you know, due to this global, uh, uh, because of this global world, you know, uh, as as a person living in a, in a developing country, I know my my economics, my politics and other social realities are still pretty much uh, a consequence of the colonial reality, you know. So how do you think we can shape that and reform that in a better manner so that we can improve our conditions socio-economically and politically? So, Aya Safiya, uh, Mustafa Akhil, he wrote a piece in New York Times. Can you also respond to his... Uh, I mean, I don't read anything that comes off of his typewriter, to be honest with you. Oh, really? The man has such a record of nonsense. Is it? Oh, of course. You got to read his books, right? I read his stuff. I thought it was good in the beginning. Nice book. Same, I read his book, yeah. Uh, now, there's a reason he's uh, published by certain publishers, because he's pushing that modernist agenda. So just off the bat, I mean, he might make one point right here or there. Likewise, I mean, uh, Salman Rushdie may have written a nice essay somewhere along the line, or you know, uh, anyone else could, but... When I look at overall the trajectory of somebody, I'm not even going to read what he has to say, right? Because it's, if it's a matter of religion, if he wants to give me a review on, you know, a movie, oh, well, I could read it, right? But I'm not going to read what he has to say on the matters of dean and politics. So overall in the Hagia Sophia matter, on classical fiqh is the easy question. Mm-hmm. On political maneuvering and what's wise and what's good. I'll leave that for the people of that region to discuss it. I can't really get involved in that. But on matters of classical fic, there's no question that returning it to be a masjid was the right thing to do because making it a museum was haram in the first place. It was a... Huh? Museum is haram? No, making the mosque into a museum is forbidden. Uh So that's what it was. It was already a legitimately standing masjid acquired and was rightfully a mosque to begin with. 500 years, yeah. Ataturk made it a museum. That was the act was forbidden. True. So by classical fiqh is the easy question, and I'm not going to get involved in if someone wants to have a debate on the timing or whatever. I'm not going to get involved in that, but by classical fiqh, if something was done that was haram, to reverse it is a good deed as a general rule, as a... So that's the general rule which is known. And I'm not going to get involved in the other debate. So um, a lot of people, they care far more what their you know, Western publishers and audiences would think than what Allah and his messenger would think. I have a problem with that. I don't really want to. So that's one thing to think about as well when you think about matters like this. Um, 
about the national will question, the but collective will. The argument would be that wasn't that in the initial place, it was a church. And they converted okay. it to mosque. Does that mean that it was illegitimately converted just because it was a church? I mean, that's a political debate, isn't it? No, not at all. It's a legal debate. That when was you it? convert and you can convert it? You can convert a church. How many masajid today are, were churches in the world? In the West, many. Yeah. Right? Are they? The question is, leg, was it legally acquired? That's a fair debate, yeah. So that's the real question. Okay. Now, if it was legally acquired, now let's just think about this. The entire city of Constantinople, the, the Hagia Sophia is a building within the city of Constantinople. People are wondering now about, was it legally acquired? The whole city was conquered. What are you talking? Right? The whole city was conquered. And, you're, and the, so the quest, that should be the real question. Now, if you want to ask the question is, was Hagia Sophia originally a mosque, uh, legally acquired as a mosque? Why don't you ask the whole city? So have all the Muslims move out of Istanbul, right? If that was the case. So there's two ways to have acquired. You legally purchase it, the lands. Then it's your land. You do what you want with it. Okay? You can just uh, tear it down and make a swimming pool if you want. Or it was, part, it was owned by the government. If it was owned by the government of Constantinople, well, now all of the government's possessions have come to you as conqueror. So you own it. So still you can do whatever you want with it. Now, the only way that it cannot be, it is not valid, is that if it exists independently by, let's say, a Christian Orthodox, a Orthodox order, right? An Orthodox organization. It's not owned by the Constantinople, the government governor of Constantinople, the king of Constantinople. It's owned by the an organization. And then the Muslim ruler says, "Okay, I'm taking it." That's illegal. If he tells them, "I'll buy it from you." and they accept it, okay, then it's legal. If it was owned by the governor, and he conquered the governor, then it's legal. So you can go to the history books for that. Okay. Did Umar bin Khattab, when he conquered Jerusalem, did, uh, can he apply the same application over there? For what mosque? Oh, for the, uh, uh, we are talking about Batum Qaddas. Well, they gave him the keys, right? Yeah. But he still didn't, you know, uh, offer prayer there. No, he didn't. What do you mean he didn't offer prayer there? Well, uh, I think the, I, I, I can't recall. Rahat, you're, can talking you about the, you're talking about the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Yeah. 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 That's not what he went to take. And it was not what they gave him. But he conquered the city, is it? He conquered the city. I don't know the details of it. Do you know who owned it at the time? Well, that's where, that was my next question was going to be. If it, if it was owned by the, that you know, government or ruler, then... No, you can't just... If, if we go in... If it was owned by the governor, then he could have. Yeah. Right? Think about this. If it's jihad, you're taking their life. Right? Mm -hmm. That's war, right? You're taking their life. You think you can't take their building, their bricks? So if it's war... It's one thing. And he owns it. The, governor, the king owns all of the, what the king owns. 
is yours now, right? That's the nature of conquest. But if it's owned by the citizenry, and we've never seen anywhere else, I've never seen anywhere else where you know, a local church that was established by a priest, they just scoop it up and take it. Hmm. It's only these ones that were run and owned by the king that they take it. It's now legal spoils of war, right? And Allah Adam, I'm sure we could... So, but the, the assumption here is that Muhammad Fatih and all the scholars at that time, you know, were wrong. Mm-hmm. Like we have no sense that... To me, as a default, the default is that for 500 years, these Ottoman scholars are there. Muhammad Fatih himself, as a default... They're not going. Do you think that they're going to disobey Allah intentionally and rip off and steal? That's my question. As a before I investigate something, my default position is that they won't. Everyone else's default position that's writing these articles is that they will. That's the default. So I'm sure if that if we investigated it and some people had more interest in the topic than me have investigated it and found that it was legally established. And if it wasn't legally established, the prayer in it would be batal. If it's stolen goods, stolen property, the prayer in it, is, is, it may, may be batal in some madhabs, right? Maybe. So, I mean, that's the default position is that it was a mosque. It was established as a mosque, Right. It was inherited from generation to generation as a mosque. Then it was made a museum. Point is, yeah, that could be a political decision as well. You, you don't want to convert that one. You want it to- could be. Yes, it could be. It could be. Yeah, there's wisdom involved in these things. There's yeah. the philosophy of why do we want to make enemies with people, right? Sure. I always take that philosophy. I mean, I defend my religion and everything, but I'm not in the mood to go make a thousand enemies tomorrow, right? Yeah. I want, I want to practice my religion in a way that is a good dawah to people. I'm personally not interested in going making enemies with the world. True. Right? It might sound like it when we defend a point of law or doctrine because like, we defend it aggressively, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that in the application of it, I'm interested in upsetting my neighbors, upsetting my township, right? No, I actually don't want to. I want to get a, why make enemies? I always say, to them, why make enemies when we could be friends? What's better in the long run? Especially in this globalized world, yeah. Of course, yeah. Uh, what about my next yeah. little question? Sorry. Go ahead. So, so, Soman had a question here. Yeah, I was saying the second question was related to the national will. You know, how can we improve oh. and reform ourselves? Well, that's a good question. That's a great question. How do we handle this situation and how do we start changing the Ummah-wide will? Anytime that you have such a big project... You really only can can work uh, uh, in small increments. You can't take on the whole thing, right? My personal philosophy of that, of, of that is that all I can do is look at my sphere of influence. I, I am concerned with the entire ummah. That's sphere of concern, but I have sphere of influence. And time is better spent on the sphere of direct influence. The first direct influence being me, the second direct influence being like my son or my daughter or my wife, 
and my my local township, the Muslims in my town, my town, right? So that's how I look at it. I tend to not have much interest in a big agenda on the sphere of concern when I haven't yet proven it at the level of influence, right? So I like to, it's called modeling, right? I like to see an example, show me a demonstration that your philosophy works with one person. Show me that it works with two or with five or with 10. Show me that it works with 20 families. Show me that it's changing the life of 20 families, that Islam has transformed and improves the lives of 50 families in the town. Then we can talk. Then you don't need to talk because your, your action, your demonstration is the talk. Now the people could look and say, wow, everyone associated with that mosque, you know, their families are in order. Their finances are in order. Their mental state is healthy. You know, divorce is less. The children like their, the, the dads like their, the uh, kids like their dads. You know, the wives love their husbands. They, uh, they're honest. They're clean. Their homes are clean. You know, they don't do drugs. They don't have criminal records. That is your dissertation, right? It's a living demonstration. So that's my philosophy on it, on how to, how to effect change. So, uh, let's wrap it up. Yeah. So before, like, we could end the conversation, I just want to make it clear. Do anyone else have a question? Because many people were waiting for the this podcast specifically. So I just want to make sure that if anyone else got the question, or uh, okay, yeah, I, yeah, I just have lost this. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. I have, I have this question related to this. Uh, intermingling of this relic or this relationship of you know culture and diversity or other cultural norms and then you know trying to merge uh, them with mm. our Islamic laws because in subcontinent in our part of the world especially when it comes to familial relations between a husband and a wife uh, uh, Quranic text and other uh, you know <coughs> uh, manuscripts are used very in a particularizing sense, you know, and they're applied on the family. And literally, I, I, I know people who use the word Daraba in, in Surah Nisa in Quran, and then they uh, try to justify the beating of their wives. And we, uh, this is a very political issue here in Pakistan as well. So how, uh, I mean, my larger question is sometimes these cultural norms uh, try to override the, the Islamic law or the, or the true teachings of the, of the religion. Um, or cultural norms is muhakkam it is um it, it is something applicable in our religion but what is cultural norms cultural norms is what people agree to benefits them right therefore as soon as a a cultural habit or tradition starts being harmful to people and they're voicing that harm it stops being a valid cultural habit so what is cultural habits? It's, it's the unspoken things we all agree about, right? That it benefits us, it's not haram, and we're all doing it, right? As soon as it's harming somebody, it no longer becomes something that we can do. If it's not harming everyone and it's benefiting and this is how we do things, you can raise your kid and say, son, this is how we do things, right? Okay. 
and we all do this. What's the reason in the Quran and Hadith? There's no reason in the Quran and Hadith except that we all agree upon it, right? And the Quran has confirmed whatever the Muslims agree upon benefits them, and it's not haram, then we can do it, right? So don't go against our cultural norms, right? We can say that to our... But once a cultural norm is showing to be truly harmful, it should be broken. It should be removed. It should be like this is a cultural revolution in this respect is acceptable without this, without the cultural revolution being worse than the culture, right? <laughs> without the medicine being worse than the harm, than the disease. So it has to be changed in a manner that that is not more harmful. So for example, it could happen that in a township, in a country, in a whole region, that the elders have a way of doing things that's very harmful to the youth or that the husbands harmful to the wives and times have changed and we don't like this anymore right but the way in which we do it if we'd got now do it by breaking up families and everyone's family's broken up now we may have done more harm so we have to revisit the manner in which we transform our societies and we should you know i'm sure it's very difficult for certain cultures because of the way they live for us modern folks who live in the modern economy and we live in a modern world we do recognize that there is fluidity things are changing certain things should never change right certain things should never change but certain things may change so the way in which i talk to my children and tell them what to do i will always have the right to tell them what to do right always as if you're living under my roof right i can tell you what to do but if i want you to love me i have to treat you in a different way because people now are different right so i have to adapt okay Dr. Shadi, I, uh, a quick question without going into detail about yeah. when when people talk about reforms in Islam, reformation. Isn't reformation a Christian term and they are com- basically coming from a Christ- Christian Christendom perspective? We don't actually have to... Uh, we would not have a reform of Islam. We may have a reform in the way we do things. Like uh, someone was talking about a cultural kind of a reformation. We, we may have... To, yeah, there, there may be some cultural reformations. Um, for example, if it's a norm for a man to come back from work and put his feet up and you know read a book or open the TV and shout from the corner of his mouth dinner and your dad did that and your mom obeyed him and your wife's dad did that and her mom obeyed her and they thought it's fine and nobody had a problem with that is it haram first of all to do that It's not necessarily haram. If we all agree that that's how life is, right? I mean, we go up to drive through and you don't say hi. You say, give me a small coffee and a donut. And you drive. You don't look at the person. You give him a dollar. You take your cup. <clears throat> is it haram? No. We all agree. We want things to work like that. So what if they had that was acceptable in a certain time period? Well, times have changed. And women now are hearing that, oh my gosh, Nobody does this anymore. Why don't you respect me? And so the view of respect is now 
improved or changed, let's say, hypothetically. You can change that. But the medicine should not be worse than the disease, right? In that respect, we don't have this cultural revolution and reform and flip the house upside down and, and be against the elders. No, the elders are still good. They just maybe have one thing, right, that we don't like. The men are still good, but they may have one thing that we don't. The women are still great, but they might have one thing that needs to be changed. The kids, same thing. So we have, in Islam, we prioritize the uh, harmony of the group. No change in our society should come at the expense of totally the harmony of the group. And, and if, the, if the good and correct ways of change don't work, Allah will take over, right? If doing things right does not affect change, then Allah Ta'ala will take over. Maybe he'll send an army to destroy you all. As, this, as Allah says in Quran, he'll change the people with the next generation. And maybe he'll use oppressors to change the people. Let's yeah. say, for example, we come to a people and say, treat the women better. We tell them in a nice way, treat the women better, right? And he doesn't listen to you. Okay, may, now Allah will get involved. And Allah may send, for example, another nation to come and destroy your nation and completely destroy it. Yes, that was evil. But you guys never listened. You know, when you were harming other people, you never listened. So Allah sent you an oppressor to change you. So, you know, we, uh, on our side, we have to, we have the right to recognize harm and to change harm, but in the method that is good, that is not more harmful. Abdurman, the Mutazila position on uh, Prophet Ibrahim Islam's uh, uh, Yeah, so uh, there, was, uh, there was a question like Mutazila and I believe Ibn Arabi has uh, a question on the sacrifice of or the dream of uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam. Like they said that, like in a modern psychoanalytic world, uh, if someone had a dream, that would be mostly in the symbolic form, right? Because yeah. the dreams, they, uh, it's a work of soul, uh, ruh, or it's not the work of ego. So that's in mostly in a symbolic form. It takes symbols, right? Metaphors and symbols. So isn't it a possibility that that question comes from Mozilla scholars? So I wanted to ask that. So they say that, isn't it a possibility that Ibrahim salam had a dream that probably was wrongly interpreted? And uh, it, it may be... Uh, you know, you're talking about blasphemy laws. I'm about to bring you the blasphemy laws right now upon that person who said that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so like, so uh, that, so that means that they are mostly in the symbolic form, right? But my answer was like, if that was wrongly interpreted by Ibrahim alayhi salam, why would Allah put that whole story in the Quran, right? Because Allah would know that if it's if it is isn't true, if that dream wasn't by Allah isn't true. So why would that whole story be put in the Quran and uh, follow through Sunnah till now? You know, you know, my ten-year-old can refute that. You know, because mm-hmm. prophets do not make mistakes in the orders that Allah gave them, and the dreams of prophets can be literal orders. Mm-hmm. They're not only symbols, they they could Mm -hmm. be symbols, and they could be literal commandments. Like in Musa Islam's when he killed a person. Yeah, exactly. 
because that was necessary. Musa alayhi salam, he punched, you know, pushed that man and he accidentally killed him. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, that was literal, right? Yeah. That happened. But that's not the religion. He didn't make a mistake in the Torah. He accidentally killed a man in this world. Not, he didn't accidentally misunderstand the Torah. That's impossible. Or else then Allah has chosen a messenger who doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And messengers have fatana. They have intelligence and they understand. And Allah is clear in what he transmits to them. So messengers do not make mistakes in the revelation. That's true. So yeah. I think that pretty much answers everything. And I would really like to thank Dr. Shadi for giving us so much time and answering everything. I really appreciate for joining today on My the pleasure. podcast. It, it was a pleasure. Thank, thank you so much, pleasure. guys. No, thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Have a good day. You too. Barakalafi. Awesome. So.